Hello, this is Dean Kernut, and welcome to the Alpha Exchange, where we explore topics in financial markets associated with managing risk, generating return, and the deployment of capital in the alternative investment industry. My guest today on the Alpha Exchange is Veneer Bansali, the founder and CIO of Longtail Alpha. I've known Veneer for a number of years now and have found his research and perspective on market risk to be quite differentiated. Armed with a PhD in theoretical physics, Veneer brings a deep understanding of financial mathematics to developing trading strategies in the derivatives market. At the same time, he's learned real lessons over the years about the inherent uncertainties in markets, the surprise Fed tightening in 1994 and the LTCM meltdown in 1998 were formative experiences for Veneer that now guide a risk philosophy that pays careful attention to the tales. Our in-depth conversation on the extremely low level of market volatility in 2017 uncovers Veneer's framework for evaluating the risks that can emerge when volatility collapses. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Veneer Bansali. With me today, it's my pleasure to have Veneer Bansali. He's the founder and CIO of Longtail Alpha. Veneer, welcome to the Alpha Exchange. Thank you very much, Dean. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's great. It's great to have you. Certainly at a time when markets are in flux again. You and I talk very much a similar language around volatility. We're coming off a year in 2017 where volatility was at a I'd call it almost a 50-year low. And then of course we had this this big disruption in February, a lot of it centered in the VIX ETP complex. And then more recently, October was a pretty volatile month for the S&P as well. So we'll have a lot to talk about today. As we get started, it'd be great to, to get a little bit more of, of your background. You've got a PhD, you've written a number of books, and you started at Solomon Brothers in the, I want to say the early 90s in fixed income arbitrage. Why don't you walk us through the, the sort of trajectory of your career, both your academic career and also your, your markets career, and, and we can discuss how you came about to form Longtail Alpha. Yeah, absolutely. I love to, you know, I like to call myself an accidental investor. I feel like I'm still on sabbatical from physics. I still have a pretty deep, you know, interest and involvement in physics with my alma mater, Caltech. And, and I did my PhD in theoretical physics at Harvard many years later, but it was accidental. So the way it all started is I was at grad school in the late, mid to late eighties. These were the years of the superconducting super collider, the big project that ultimately lost funding. And while I was finishing my PhD, it became pretty clear that my kind of physics, which was kind of offbeat and somewhat abstract, was possibly you know, not going to get funded because this is, again, this is, you know, I didn't understand at the time, but this was coincident with recessions. And scientists typically don't understand, you know, what's going on, why is funding getting cut? You know, it also follows economic cycles. I really had no understanding. I really actually had no interest in finance whatsoever, but I got a call out of the blue from Goldman Sachs. This was possibly even my third year in grad school, and they wanted to interview physicists. You know, this was a heyday of option pricing and exotic options, and basically exotic options and option pricing is you know, really just solving differential equations, and physicists basically learn how to do that You know, when they're very young. So I went into New York. It was a free trip, and I don't think I even cut my hair. I had long hair, and I had a beard and I got interviewed and I sat across from an elderly gentleman who also told me that, you know, he was a physicist on the trade floor and he was taking notes. 
And I could see upside down while he's taking notes, you know, saying, okay, doesn't know any finance, you know, can solve problems. It's extremely good at math. Anyway, I went back home and I told my roommate that I interviewed at Goldman Sachs. It was a great free trip. You know, obviously I'm a physics grad student. I'm never going to do that because I don't even know what these guys do. And I met this guy. His name was, I think, Black or something, Fisher Black. And my roommate, who was an economist, he couldn't believe it that I had just had an interview with Fisher Black. And long story short, I got a job offer to work in research for Fisher Black. And very promptly, I declined it because I didn't really you know, want to go into finance. I wanted to be a physicist. Little did I realize that physics jobs were going to be very hard to find. I had one postdoc in France and another postdoc offer, you know, down in Texas or some other place. And I kind of had a temporary teaching gig at, at Harvard. So I said, you know what, let me do this and see what happens. I did that for a while and got another call, you know, maybe six months later. Now, this time, multiple headhunters, you know, Goldman Sachs and and Citibank and one of the partners from Goldman, who I became very good friends with, came down, tried to recruit me. You know, I said, you know, what the heck? You know, I'll put my physics career on hold, do this for a year, figure out what it's all about. And basically, instead of going to Goldman, I ended up going to Citibank in the exotic options desk for the very simple reason that I knew even less about trading than I did about financial research. And this seemed to be a one year or six month period where I could go and hang out on a trade floor and try to kind of figure out what these folks do. So for me, it was a little bit like, you know, observing the wild animals in a, in a zoo from the other side. I said, you know, what the hell, I'll go and do this for a year. And at the end of the year, I'm going to quit and I'm going to do my postdoc and become a physics professor. Anyways, ended up at Citibank with a couple of really excellent non-quantitative traders who helped me kind of go up the up the curve. I had no idea what I was doing. I remember the very first day when I joined the firm, I saw this ticker flashing in front of me and my boss said, you know, okay, pick up the phone and trade this thing. And I said, what do you mean trade this thing? He said, buy and sell. And I said, what is this thing that I'm buying and selling? And he said, it's the bond futures contract. And that's where my love for the bond futures contract started, which obviously I got punished numerous times like everybody else did. I remember in 1994 trying to catch a falling knife. But again, long story short, I really fell in love with the experimental side of finance, meaning the trade floor, and started trading exotic derivatives, very quickly launched the hybrid and exotic option desk at Citibank in 1992, which became fairly successful. Left in 94, 95, Went to Solomon Brothers in the ARB group. There were, you know, people like myself there that I really liked. Uh, we had a great time. I learned how to play liar's poker pretty well. Actually, earned my my first winning was I won one year, and my boss at the time ended up giving me obviously settling, but then also giving me one of his old boats. So I, you know, I kind of got interested in it. You know, fast forward to two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Actually, before that, before we even go that far, we had the nineteen ninety eight crisis, and right around that time. The Solomon Brothers got shut down, or our desk got shut down. So I ended up going to Credit Suisse again in proprietary trading for a year or so. By this time, I'd already started speaking with Bill Gross, and I wanted to get back into fixed income. And the natural place was to go to PIMCO. So I ended up coming to PIMCO in 2000, and I had a dual role. I was in charge of all the analytics and model building in a very typical startup or new PIMCO style. I was assigned certain portfolios, and one of the first portfolios there was that I started was a hedge fund portfolio that ended up basically being relative value fixed income. 
that did very well, very successful, and became basically the seed for the absolute return or hedge fund business at PIMCO, which has grown you know, very, very well since then. Starting in 07, 06, 07, I also started an area called quantitative portfolios, which is what I was running until I left there. And I started in 2015, I started Longtail Alpha. But, but the origin of that whole area, quantitative portfolios, which had things like tail risk hedging and trend following and volatility trading, et cetera, was really inquiries from clients back in 03, 04, looking at better ways of managing risk. So, you know, fast forward to Longtail Alpha, after being a partner at PIMCO for, you know, around 10 years and building this business, I decided that I really wanted to focus on a part of the financial world that I believed was relatively unexploited which is the whole area of tails or rare events. Yeah, there are some people doing it, obviously, and they're doing it very well, but it's still a fairly sparse, sparsely populated area. And secondly, I do believe that traditional ways of portfolio construction and what's in clients' portfolios is missing certain elements that you know me and my firm hopefully are able to provide to these clients. So 2015 is when we started Longtail Alpha, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about that in the next few minutes. That's a great, great intro to a really substantial background. And a couple of things I picked up along the way. One is you're joining the Fixed Income Arb Group and, and having some success at Liars Poker. That's excellent, given the reputation for that that team in that game. You know, it's interesting that you you're coming at the world from a vantage point, certainly that overlaps with my own philosophy, which is that it's not to say that tails aren't can't be expensive. They certainly are and and often are, but that as you, you say, the typical portfolio construction doesn't really have enough of a framework to consider the force, I think, of some of the events that we, you know, have to confront what seems like every five to seven years. And what's interesting, and I've been doing some some teaching at my alma mater, St. John's University, I'm teaching a class on financial crisis. And our first two case studies, we we looked at the 87 crash and then spent some time on long-term capital, seeing as it's it, it's 20, 20 year anniversary. So I think it's interesting, a little ironic that you come at the world from some construction of the, the value of convexity, the, the value of long vol. And really when you look at LTCM and, and look at the portfolio of quote unquote convergence trades, it's it's just one huge pile of of short vol trade construction stacked upon one another. So so two things. One, you mentioned nineteen ninety-four, and that was the bond market massacre, right? The unexpected series of of moves by Greenspan really upended folks and Seeing as you're out in Orange County, the Robert Citron, the Orange County treasurer, really blew up on a lot of those structured notes. What was that like? The 1994, you know, bond market debacle and, and sort of the leverage that was tied to the front end of the yield curve. Tell us a little bit more as to, from a derivative standpoint and the kind of trade structures you guys were looking at at the time. Yeah, that, that's an interesting period. So I, I'll tell you, you know, that's when I learned some of my most important lessons. And as they say in the financial industry, if you get beaten up early enough, it's a very good thing for you because you get cautious and you realize that this is not, you know, an easy thing to succeed at. And, and you get, you know, your risk management sort of imprints itself on your brain in a, in a very important way, which I think, at least for me so far, and who knows what the future looks like, but so far, you know, has saved my skin in many, many, many different ways. So I'll tell you what happened in 1994. I remember 
everybody at that time was quite involved with the front end of the yield curve. And, and, and I remember one of my bosses came back from a dinner and said he sat at a table of hedge fund managers and pretty much everybody was long the front end of the yield curve. And this is right before the February, March tightening, the surprise tightening that Greenspan did. So January, pretty much everybody was levered massively long euro dollar futures contracts. And I've seen this again three times in my career and it happens almost, you know, with some sort of repeated precision. So again, you know, you can never forecast it exactly, but you can see, you know, when the same kind of thing starts to happen, it looks different, but it's usually it's the same, you know, same wine in sort of new bottles. But again, what happened there was people were very long the front end of the yield curve and structured products were all the rage because everybody was trying to get yield. And as soon, and you mentioned one of them already, you know, from the Orange County debacle, inverse floaters, floaters of all kinds, you know, mortgage securities. And people believed like they do now and like they've done in the past crisis that they can hedge themselves when the time comes and they can be there first. And even if they're not first, the markets will provide them with enough liquidity. So we'll talk more about this in a second. But but the real the real point is that once Greenspan tightened, my mistake was that at that time, I had only had about, you know, call it two or three years of real institutional derivatives trading experience. So my initial response was to cash the falling knife. Basically, I remember, you know, the bond futures contract that I mentioned you know, was the first thing that I didn't know how to trade, but I got quite involved with trading, you know, bond futures and, and uh, 10-year futures. I tried to keep buying them while they were falling like a knife and, and, and they fell. And, you know, obviously you keep justifying and you, you know, start looking at option trades and you start layering trades upon trades. You start to hedge. And after a while, you realize that your basic principle or your philosophy or your approach, your theory or thesis, whatever you want to call it, was fundamentally wrong because when rates started to rise, deleveraging started to happen. You know, there were various structures. There were exotic options. There were hybrids of all sorts where, you know, one type of instrument was linked to another type of instrument. And all of the all of those things came home to roost. You know, one thing I like to say is one of my first books that I wrote on exotic options, you know, and hybrid options, that book's sales cycle coincides with releveraging and deleveraging. Because when yields are low and when the yield curve is such that it's very hard to make money by just, you know, clipping the steepness of the yield curve, the sales of the book go up because people start looking at structured products in order to generate yield. And unfortunately, today's environment to me feels somewhat similar because after being out of print for a while, there's been quite a few requests for copies of that book. So I ran a new printing. So in the last three or four years, I've become a bookseller of sorts, selling that book to people who want to buy you know, exotic options books as well. So a lot of the structures that have come back into the mix today, hybrids and multi-asset structures and yield enhancement stuff I wrote about in the late 90s, because there was a time 30 years or 20 years ago, you know, that the same kind of rhythm was also playing out in the markets. You know, it's funny, as, as you describe 94... I had my first job at Nomura Securities in 1991 is when I started, and 94 was just before I, I went to business school. So I was still in the markets at that time. And I'm just thinking, okay, that's 25 years ago. And so the let's say the average person in a risk-taking seat, let's say that person has, you'll call it five to seven years of experience. And you, you, know, you, you don't need all that much experience to start being responsible for managing capital at some firms. So that's for me, that's the equivalent 20 years ago. That's the equivalent of something that happened 
relative to my own career in 1970. And that's just a year after I was born. And, and you know, they say that history is a, is a foreign country. And I always say the history of risk is really a foreign country, right? If it happened long ago from your own perspective, it's just something people can't really learn from, unfortunately. And, and this is, I think, where some of the risks come with the, the, the folks that have only been in a exceedingly low yield and low vol environment is they just don't appreciate the you know, extent to which markets can change swiftly, right? It just, it, it takes, like you said, it takes living through it to actually learn the lessons. One of the consequences of Fed policy is that there just haven't been enough lessons from a price discovery standpoint. Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, I think to, you know, just to add to that, you know, central banks and others provide this insulation and they provide you, you know, and it's been, obviously it's worked out because it, it rescues the economy in a time of need, but that results in you know, unintended consequences, you know, over leveraging. And like you said, the new generation of traders believe that this time is different and they are bolder because they're obviously, they haven't, haven't had the hard knocks yet. And if they have had the hard knocks and survived, then they're usually promoted and become managers. So, you know, again, every seven to 10 years, you see this, you know, routine happening. I'm also a pilot. I don't know if you knew that. And, you know, there's a saying in aviation that there's old pilots and there are bold pilots. There are old pilots and bold pilots, but they're rarely old, bold pilots. Uh, Because uh, if you are too brave and if you try to take outsized risks, typically, you know, the natural world, the financial world, you know, will ultimately catch up with you. So by nature, I'm extremely risk averse. You know, it's a little bit like that chicken that sees once it's hatched, whatever animal is, you know, walking past it, thinks of itself as its mom or dad. You know, it's very similar for me because very early on, I saw what it means to get caught up in a deleveraging cycle and how illiquid things can get. Even this year, there's been a couple of events and occasions where here the back of my neck has stood up because it has felt to me like three or four times I've experienced in the past, you know, 2008, 2000, 2009 for sure, the illiquidity, 2000, 1998, 1994. And it, it is very scary when you feel like even as a small participant in the market, which certainly I am these days, the markets are stretching my ability in terms of you know liquidity, certainly for large investors you know, who rely on the liquidity to be there when they need it. That could end up proving extremely precarious if we had a bad, you know, a really bad event. Well, what was for you 1998 like in terms of the Russia default and, and then the LTCM portfolio really becoming kind of central to the, the market risk dynamic? What were you responsible for at the time from a risk standpoint? And, and what from that, that period, I sort of liken that period to something like July 98 to October, November 98 is when they arrested the systemic risk that you know, resulted from the portfolio. That's when the Long-Term Capital Oversight Committee came in. What lessons did that period impart upon you? So yeah, so that's, a, that's a great year in my life from the point of view of learning. It wasn't such a great year in terms of stability of career, but right. I remember starting early 1998 at Solomon Brothers. Things were pretty good. And in the ARB group, obviously, it was, you know, call it, I don't know, 12 or 13 people, very smart, all of whom I'm very good friends with still, you know, running fairly large positions, big balance sheet, that obviously started to go south. And this is around the time that Solomon Brothers and Travelers merged and Travelers wasn't able to take the volatility of the ARB book and, 
you know, that's the time one day, you know, we came in into work and we were all told we were fired. And I was one of the people who was told that, you know, the ARP desk is shut down. Fortunately, I'd already been in the industry for 30, you know, for I, I was about 33, 34 years old, but I'd been in the industry for about, you know, call it seven or eight years. So I didn't have to scramble to go get a job and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. So I kind of ended up spending most of the summer on my boat while trying to figure out the boat that I wanted, Lars Poker, which I had to learn how to to basically figure out how to drive it after you know, causing a little bit of damage to other boats in the marina. But I, th- I think we call that physical settlement, taking delivery. <laughs> exactly. That's right. So I took delivery of the boat, but I didn't quite realize how to back it. So I, I had a couple of issues trying to back it into the little slip on the Hudson River. But, you know, finally I figured it out. And, you know, as a experimenter uh, at heart, I, you know, I finally got pretty good at it. But I spent, you know, basically the whole summer plotting my you know next plan. I really wanted to end up at PIMCO, which I ultimately did. But in the meantime, it looked like you know, things were unraveling. I, I have one interesting anecdote from them. I, I Because I was a Solomon Brothers, you know, ARB Disc Desk alum, as soon as I kind of came on market, I got a number of offers from all the other ARB people. I won't name names, obviously, but, you know, all the four or five other big ones who, you know, were waiting on the sidelines to basically hire all the talent from Solly. And and I interviewed with, I think, or at least had phone calls with three or four of them. I mean, all the large ones that you would name. And within a period of three months while I was on my boat, all three of them, the jobs basically disappeared. And I knew at that time that something was going on. Little did I realize that, you know, this was a time of crowded trades and everybody else had the same trades on that Solomon did. So not a surprise that, you know, the domino effect came into play and pretty much everybody lost a lot of money. And ultimately that resulted in the demise of LTCM. My job at that time at Solomon was running the municipal arbitrage portfolio, basically buying municipal bonds and, and hedging them and doing some foreign exchange arb. And very quickly I realized that there was going to be a fire sale. So instead of waiting for a while to you know come to my next job out on the West Coast, I thought I have to kind of get you know something going relatively quickly so I can be there to take advantage of liquidation. And that's ultimately what ended up happening. That's what led me to Credit Suisse for a year where I was in charge of basically setting up a brand new municipal arbitrage business, which you know ended up doing fairly well. And then there came a time where you know, the PIMCO thing thing happened and I basically Bill Gross and, and the team were the legends to me after Solomon Brothers fixed income. If there was one place to go to continue trading bonds, it was going to PIMCO and you know, I kinda of ended up at PIMCO in two thousand. Back to LTCM for for a little bit more of your own insights, because you use the term crowded trades. And I think this is a, a kind of holy grail concept. Of course, it's elusive in a lot of ways to really truly know the the degree to which a trade is crowded. We look at futures data and we can track ETF flows and options data, but it's it's pretty imperfect when you add up add it all up with the OTC data of trades that we don't see. But with with LTCM, one of the quotes that really stuck with me was one, I think it was Hillebrand made the comment that suddenly Danish mortgages were acting increasingly correlated to swap spreads and risk arb. And they just had this what's going on here type of reaction with the sense that these things really shouldn't be correlated. And I think what they really tragically failed to, to realize is that the, the size of that portfolio itself became the, the centerpiece of market risk. 
And there's this quote from Victor Hagani who said something like he was distinguishing hurricane insurance from financial market insurance. And I've used this a million times, but he basically says that if more hurricane insurance is written into the market, it doesn't make the act of mother nature more or less likely. But with financial insurance, i.e. short vol, it itself becomes a part of the risk equation. Ironic to, to realize that, late, obviously, but I think what I see in a lot of your work is this notion of vol as a part of the climate of risk, not just a trade, but a risk factor in terms of introducing some vulnerability. And so, you know, maybe just as you think about the term shadow financial insurance, you know, you've written a great paper here. Was this published in, was it Journal of... It's actually the Financial Analyst, yeah, Financial Analyst Journal. Right, that's, yeah, FAJ. So maybe give us some, some, as you step back and think about the nature of volatility, especially as investors use it these days in their portfolios, why don't you give us an overview of some of the work that you've done there and just how you're how you've arrived at this this framework. Yeah, so it's it's very interesting. So, you know, I know Vic and Larry both very well because they're also alums of Solomon. I think they're both brilliant. I agree with most of what they say. I do have to take a little bit of you know different tack on the on the nature versus financial markets, you know, when it comes to hurricanes. Yes, it's true that writing a lot of financial insurance or hurricane insurance rather doesn't cause more hurricanes. Obviously that would be silly. To imagine. However, it's not the hurricanes that matter. It's the damage that's caused by hurricanes. If there's a lot of suppliers of insurance, and this will tie very well into our, our you know volatility discussion in a second, that can suppress the price of insurance. If the price of insurance is very low, that can lead to suboptimal construction. That can lead to people taking more risks and you know building in areas or you know, underwriting projects that may or may not, you know, be able to survive a lar- large hurricane. So it's not the fact that the hurricanes themselves are predicted by catastrophic insurance selling, but it is the fact that the total amount of damage cause does react somewhat, maybe to a large degree, to a lot of supply of insurance, even in that market. Now, how does this tie into, you know, what we're talking about here? So the paper that we wrote is about this ecosystem that develops typically every 10 to 12 years and typically coincident with yields being very low, people looking for other places to get returns, and then some sort of good stuff, you know, call it volatility selling, which we all know the volatility risk premium exists and it's a good thing to have in a portfolio because over time, on average, selling volatility makes you money. But just like you know, San Francisco Bay, as people say, you know, you can, you know, it's very on average, it's very low, it's not very deep. There are some very deep places where you can easily drown yourself. So it is with volatility selling. And what happens, in my view, and what has happened at this time around, is a whole ecosystem has developed, and that's what we discussed in the paper. So you've got different timescales and different horizons for people, and they're all under the impression that they're doing different things when it comes to essentially what we call the short volatility trade. But they are all in the same business, which is either explicitly selling volatility or engaging in strategies that, in the paper, Larry Harris, who's my co-author from USC, that we call volatility contingent strategies. So strategies where the rebalancing mechanism, for example, in risk parity or in trend following, 
or in variable annuities might be triggered off low levels of volatility or you know many other strategies you know such as even buying credit synthetic credit which is linked to the level of asset price volatility that's in you know various theoretical models so if you go through this whole ecosystem at the very top of it are central banks who've encouraged selling of volatility until very recently by keeping rates very low hence driving people into you know looking for other sources of return and implicitly providing a put on the on the downside that people are more than happy to assume is down there and then you've got uh, you know various people who've read the same literature saying that the variance risk premium exists and you can delta hedge it where i think there's a substantial flaw which we'll talk about in a second and then you've got you know a lot of systematic people systematic funds who have been taking and doing this now in a institutionally retail sense so what does that mean so until very recently these strategies were the domain of hedge funds and and private investors who were you know very i guess financially independent so they could suffer the drawdown without anybody finding out what's going on but many of these strategies have been brought out out of the closet so to speak or out of the you know private area into the mainstream so there's mutual funds out there that very publicly published their rules on how these levered volatility targeting strategies work and they have to follow the rules because now it's not about making or losing money it's more about following the prospectus and the bigger risk is that you say you're going to do something and you don't do that something so as these retail strategies become very large whether it's in trend following or in risk parity on margin they can start impacting all the other either directly vol selling strategies or vol contingent strategies across the board and the fear as we wrote in the paper is that this can trigger a cascade in in the in the world of physics we call it scale invariance so you start at the very low level or you know at the high frequency level that goes up into you know the xivs of the world that you know we saw in february which are explicit strategies where there's explicit retail driven deleveraging that filters up to you know trend following risk parity volatility harvesting strategy risk premium annuities and then up the curve all the way into the deep pocketed vol sellers who are probably not going to flinch they're probably not going to go out and start buying volatility because it's not economically sensible for them to do that but even if they quit selling volatility or they just back off for a second then that could cause this cascade to you know have very significant impact in the markets and i think we saw the first round of that in february and then we just saw the second round of that in october to me it doesn't feel like it's done yet to me it seems like you know it just has to resolve itself before volatility selling becomes attractive again relative to you know where ultimately yield levels are going you make some some great points there and in your paper in the in the faj what i think is is very helpful is this as you describe it ecosystem of strategies and I think one of the important points here is what is the respective reaction functions of, of each participant and where there's a very limited degree of flexibility on the reaction function, that's where you potentially get into trouble, right? And so, so folks would distinguish, for example, the vol control segment, which has a limited scope for flexibility from maybe overwriters, right? But buy the stock and sell an upside call. That vol seller, you tell me if you would agree with this or not, that vol seller 
seems to be almost a vol provider, almost a source of stability because that investor by selling the upside call is kind of providing bullets, so to speak, from a gamma positioning in the portfolio to investors like the street, the liquidity providers. Do do you have an opinion on the view that it's not just whether vol is sold or bought, but it's just what people do with it and how they react contingently on what happens in the markets? Absolutely, yeah. So that that's a very important distinct you know distinction to make. So volatility in its, itself is not bad. Volatility selling in itself is obviously not bad because it's just a risk transfer mechanism, like you just mentioned, you know, from certain investors to other investors. Now the trouble is you know, there's a twofold problem that can emerge. One is when people start extrapolating the locally stabilizing activity to a globally stabilizing activity, which you know markets can't clear if everybody becomes a vol seller. And so the the risk is if you combine this local stability with global instability, at the same time with excessive leverage in the system where there are certain weak hands that have to lever. And this is the important distinction I make between volatility and tail risk. So volatility is basically standard deviation or sigma or you know local stability. And the the picture that and the cartoon that I've used various times in presentations and so on. You know, is the is the sombrero or you know the Mexican hat, and you think about a little ball oscillating at the top of that Mexican hat, and as long as it's oscillating and people get conditioned to delta hedging, you know, and managing your risks around that little local stability at the top of the of the hat, things look okay, and you're harvesting the vol premium. The risk is, and we describe this more in the FAJ papers as well, is that the whole system gets over levered. To this local wall selling and local hedging, that they lose sight of the fact that options gamma can explode, you know, as markets go up. And the lower you're starting from, the more explosive explosive the gamma is. The rate of change of gamma is very very fast when you're starting from low levels. And you know, option prices can quadruple, even go tenfold or fifteenfold, like we saw in two thousand seven, two thousand eight. And more importantly for people, it's not just the prices, it's the sensitivity of the Greeks. They start exploding as the market starts to come out of that local equilibrium, uh, you know, out of that uh, top of the Mexican hat into the brim, which is another local equilibrium. So people in, again, in physics, use a physics analogy, this is something that's called spontaneous symmetry breaking. You don't need a exogenous shock necessarily to make this happen, just the local stability that becomes a global instability because of too many people can cause an endogenous deleveraging, which is precisely how you know this works in physics. There is something called vacuum fluctuations, and suddenly vacuum fluctuations result in things aligning, spontaneous symmetry breaking, you know, like you talk about in ferromagnets, like suddenly spins align and you, a thing that's non-ferromagnetic or non-magnetic becomes magnetic. So suddenly things align and it's all endogenous, right? So when you're heating a cold pot of water, suddenly at a certain point when the temperature rises high enough, that water goes from liquid form straight to gaseous form. And you don't, you know, you can say in retrospect, oh, it was the heat. And you can say, you know, in retrospect, something happened or it was the Fed. But it's really the endogenous effects, which is something that, you know, people need to pay attention to. How many people are doing it? You know, what is their position? How weak are they in terms of how they hedge and how rigorous are they about hedging? If they're very rigorous, 
which is where the mutual fund concept comes in. If, they, if you have to be very rigorous and you have to follow a certain prescribed rule, then the risk is that the endogeneity becomes a problem much quicker because people are going to do what they're supposed to do. And that's unfortunately, you know, I think what happened in, in February of this year. And what you describe, and I really see so much of this is so relevant to the unique experience of, of 2017. It's sort of a tail event of, of low realized vol. When implied vol and option prices get low enough, and as you say, there are a lot of folks that are just solving for some income generation level, and that's a static assumption. We know the challenges that pensions and, and other investors have in, in keeping up with targets in this incredibly low yield environment. And so if the straddle is your effectively your coupon generating instrument, you just have to sell more and more as vol gets crunched lower and lower. And to me, it, it's, it's exactly as you've said, it's fortifying the street with ever more gamma, but the gamma is very, very localized. And when the guardrails are tripped and you get outside of them, I think that's where you start to see the potential for, for disorder, at least. I forgot to mention one other thing that is actually relevant. So I, I did mention the local versus global and deleveraging. And the third thing I, I should highlight there, Dean, which I think you just reminded me or jogged my, my thinking on this, is, is, is the ability of people to hedge. So, you know, one of the most used instruments in the market that people use to hedge a lot of these strategies locally, at least, are the e-mini futures contracts, the, you know, the, the, the S&P small futures contracts that are very, very liquid. I mean, they're massively traded and the liquidity on them is almost taken as gospel truth. And unfortunately, what we have seen in February and you know, in the last few weeks in October is that on the downside, when there's clear signals that hedgers are coming into hedge or somebody's trying to rebalance the market basically the liquidity evaporates and and again you know this is part of that ecosystem also you know 10 or 15 or 20 years ago there were humans making markets predominantly today predominantly you know bots are making markets in these kind of futures contracts and the games that humans play the rules by which humans play and the rules by which a machine plays are very different you know humans like to bet on mean reversion humans like to behaviorally look smart so they'll provide liquidity when they believe that in the small run, the short run you know they can scalp this is not an absolute statement but relatively speaking you know humans are more more likely than not to catch a falling knife on the other hand you know just anecdotally and just the way i've understood you know things like you know reinforcement algorithms and so on that work in the in the you know financial technology market financial technology area these robots, once they start losing, have no incentive to provide the liquidity. So the liquidity that everybody has been relying on is likely to provide to prove very fleeting. And unfortunately, that's what's happened in the big sell-offs this year, is there's been absolutely you know, no liquidity and the order book has been very, very small. So one, one of the things that people point to both in, in February and then more recently is this notion of whether it's risk parity, vol control is often thrown into this category of these quasi-short gamma strategies. Your ex-colleague, Mohammed Al-Iran, has often used the term liquidity illusion, where maybe a long period of benign outcomes in markets just gets folks, leaves them with a greater sense of the ability to transact in any size at a real tight price and that we overestimate the ability to do that. What do you say to the the sort of quasi short gamma 
component of the marketplace? How do we measure it? There's a lot of folks out there on the sell side trying to put pinpoint numbers around how much stock is to buy or sell based on the imbalances in these models. What's your view on just that product set, the, the sort of short gamma product set that's driven by things like vol control strategies? I think it's, you know, one of the great things about financial technology and the democratization of finance, which I think has happened in the last seven to 10 years, is that it's very easy. And also, you know, I should I should add great schools who are teaching a lot of people, you know, financial engineering and access has become much easier. So you take, take this whole other part of the ecosystem that, you know, trading and investing and market making, putting in your models into practice has never been easier like it is today. It's not just what we saw, what we see, you know, with our naked eye, the, you know, all the people who are doing it explicitly as institutions, but also all the, the do it yourself, the Home Depot version of, you know, ball control and risk parity and trend following that literally these days, you know, anybody with a master's in finance degree can get, you know, come out and basically implement, you know, it's very easy. I mean, it probably takes a couple of weeks to, you know, get yourself up and running. So I think if you count all of those and I put them in the ecosystem as well, I think the short gamma complex is much larger than we give it credit for because, you know, it's not just in XIV, et cetera, you know, where obviously we saw in February, March, you know, there was a lot of retail interest in it and there were blogs about it. And what doesn't kill you, like they say, you know, emboldens you or makes you even braver. And that's, I think, unfortunately, what happened subsequent to February, March is that people who were on the sidelines and who managed to survive, you know, with part of their capital intact in February or March actually came in in spades and actually doubled down or maybe increased the position. So I think, I think the short gamma complex is actually pretty substantial and very quite large in the market. And I don't think we've quite seen the unwind of it yet. And hopefully we won't. Hopefully people will say, look, you know, this is not a game that you want to play at the cost of a lot of capital loss. So maybe people will just, you know, quit playing the game or delever a little bit in advance and everything will be great and financial markets will, you know, not have another big fit. But unfortunately, I think the way things are looking to me is that not getting hurt very badly actually emboldens people. And I think we're likely to see more of it than less. And Veneer, when you think about the short vol complex, is that strictly a global equities phenomenon? Can you make a similar argument around FX carry or the obviously rate vol has been purposefully suppressed for years by central banks? Are there folks leaning on that to try to generate a little bit of carry? And, and is there a, a similar, at least potential reaction function all the same way at the same time? How do you look at the other asset classes? Yeah, so this is this is a great question. So, you know, we've been doing this and I remember, you know, going back to, uh, I guess, the early 2000s when I was at PIMCO, you know, one of the ways, and it's no secret, Bill has written about it and others have written about it, Bill Grostad is, you know, one of the ways money managers and deep-pocketed investors like PIMCO and even sovereign wealth funds, et cetera, you know, make long-term endowments, so to speak, you know, make their long-term returns is by selling volatility. And, you know, you can think of this as roughly speaking, selling insurance, selling, selling financial insurance. And, you know, we've had many, many periods in which selling financial insurance has been very, very profitable, but then you can take it to the you know next part of the of the logic, so to speak, which is, okay, so if you are thinking of yourself as an insurer who is selling insurance, you know, why should you be a monoline insurance? Meaning, why should you only sell it in one market? Because isn't diversification good? 
if you can make money by selling insurance in one market, then you should be selling insurance in five different markets, and they they'll diversify, so you have a diversified insurance or reinsurance portfolio. So, and that logic is very very tempting. And so, unfortunately, you know, I was part of educating people about that in the early two thousands. And like all good things, you know, it can be taken to its logical extreme when yields are very low and people start levering. So what has happened indeed is that people have taken wall selling strategies from just equities into other things, you know, into interest rates, into FX, into commodities, into the VIX futures contracts. You know, wherever there's vol, you're supposed to smack it because you're supposed to, you know, take that variance risk premium. So so unfortunately. The net result is that every everybody's become or is becoming a multi-line financial reinsurer, and unfortunately, again, you know, some parallels. And again, I hope we don't, you know, run into a crisis like two thousand seven, two thousand eight. But in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, people who had no business being in the shadow banking business because they didn't have a banking license, you know, all the asset-backed paper and the SIVs and so on, as you and I well know, they ended up in the, the shadow banking world. And there was a very good logic to it, which was, look, you know, if the banks are not going to do it, you should provide liquidity, you know, through these structured vehicles because over the long run, housing markets go go up, not down, and you should be doing it. I think, unfortunately, some similar logic is in play today where instead of sh- shadow banks, you've got shadow financial insurance. Again, you don't need a license to be a shadow financial reinsurers because you can just go into the derivatives market and create shadow financial reinsurance. And if enough people start doing it, you know, without a license, so to speak, you run into the similar, you know, structural problems like you had in 2007, 2008. And again, these are levered. These are the beer derivatives, not very different. You know, uncannily, the SIV was replaced with an XIV. I mean, some of the parallels are just unbelievable to me. The, the rhythm of, you know, history repeating is just uncanny from that point of view. So yes, to the short answer to your question is volatility is being sold, I think, in all different markets. There's a lot of volatility and you know tail risk selling tourism in the marketplace. There is solid academic literature that relies on certain assumptions that as true market participants, we don't believe we should believe in that justify why this is a good thing to do. And as in all things, when you take something that's good to its logical extreme by overlevering it, I think you you know you you saw the seeds of uh, of a debacle. Yeah, I I wonder if we'll look back on this again. This hard to get away from the Fed's role first as firefighter, but probably took it too far in in guiding market outcomes. And you think about the the force of of forward guidance, especially as articulated by the Fed, it becomes something that you really have to lean on whether it's just exploiting roll down and vol curves or rate curves, vol risk premium, even if implied are low, if realized is even lower, you're almost forced to. One of the areas there has been a lot of risk premium, but no real materialization of risk for years now is US inflation. Despite their best efforts and throwing the kitchen sink at trying to you know, rate, raise inflation, they've gotten it up a little bit, but it's certainly been something that from the the folks that were very worried about tales of inflation to the upside, they certainly will call them early, I think, at this point, but it would also easy be easy to call them call them wrong. 
I'm personally not a believer in in secular stagnation of uh, the theory espoused by Larry Summers, but it's it's easy to see that inflation is just really really hard to come by. I was hoping you could talk to us a little bit about some of the work you've done there on the sort of option centric ways to protect against inflation. What what are those vehicles, and, and is this a tail risk that long tail alpha is is also concerned about? Yes. So we look at all tails. We are agnostic to asset classes, obviously. But you know, to answer your question, so yes, inflation, you know, you can play both sides of the argument, which I'm, you know, prepared to do as well. So on the one hand, you know, there's secular forces, demographics, you know, technology, productivity, et cetera, so which are you know, deflationary. And clearly, there's a lot to be said about it. But on the other hand, you've got, you know, this, what you just mentioned very aptly, you know, throwing a lit match, you know, on, on kerosene. So you got all the central banks suddenly switch from inflation being bad to deflation being bad. So you've got you know easing, you've got negative yields. You know for you know the, the most incredible thing in my whole life that I've ever seen in the financial markets is the fact that even though you know European inflation is running at you know call it between one and two percent, depending on how you look at it, you've got negative yields in most of Europe, where you are supposed to give them money and for certain certain lose it for the privilege of holding their bonds. So, you know, clearly the central banks have bought into this whole, you know, idea that inflation is good and rising inflation is, you know, is good for everybody. And I think the risk here is that they lose the anchor, so to speak, the credibility. And I think that's what's keeping the market somewhat controlled and inflation not going up is because expectations are that central banks are still credible and they're going to come in and they're going to stamp out you know, any incipient growth in inflation very quickly so that there is no inflation. Unfortunately, to me, it's not so simple because going back, you know, to what happened in the 70s, and maybe you have to look at the 70s and 80s, you know, you had a central bank or a federal reserve system that was on the easy side of fight, meaning they were you know, keeping policy easy. And that's obviously a global phenomenon. Interest rates are, you know, zero to negative in most places. You had a political center or fiscal area, you know, clearly in the U.S., which is asking for lower rates, more growth, which in itself is inflationary. And, you know, I'm not a calling for a very large raise in inflation, but if inflation were to come back, it would wreak havoc on many different asset classes, certainly fixed income, but also on, you know, equities, on, you know, various other structured strategies that we just talked about in volatility, because ultimately the discount factor determines the NPV of all asset prices. And if inflation were to rise, suddenly yields would go up, risk premiums would go up, and the discount factor would fall, dragging down in a correlated way the prices of all assets. And that's not my central case forecast, but unfortunately, people don't like to buy hedges when they're incredibly cheap. So one of the cheapest sources of volatility in the markets right now, or cheapest places to hedge risk, is in the interest rate markets and you know rate volatility by any measure is at call it between the bottom 10th to 20th percentile of you know history so look at swap options look at whatever you want to look at and we do believe that if in a portfolio there's any risk that a sharp rise in inflation could result in a substantial sell off you don't even have to look off you know look at fancy strategies for example tips break evens and you know, perhaps inflation caps and floors, which are quite custom and not very liquid. 
you know, the first thing you want to set your sight on is how do I hedge duration? How do I hedge the shape of the curve risk? And today, the market is providing you with ample opportunity, not unlike 2017, where equity volatility was so low that you could have hedged, you know, at VIX at nine or nine and a half. Today, fixed income is giving you the same opportunity. But unfortunately, you know, I've seen this too many times in my career and I'm seeing it again. Uh, people uh, don't like to buy insurance when it is optimal to do it. People buy insurance after the event or during the event is happening because that feels better. Because again, there's a lot of behavioral literature on this topic is that people like to you know, count their wins or their gains and losses in a way that doesn't aggregate in the in the proper way. So mental accounting plays a very important role, you know, in how and when people decide to to hedge their risk. Unfortunately, fixed income hedging, even though it's cheap today, has basically no bid to it currently. I, I like to say that, you know, market prices when they're really stable for extended period of time, and I would put inflation in that camp, I would put equities in that camp from last year, they they steal your imagination from you, right? You wind up living in the moment too much and that sort of over-extrapolation phenomenon that we're all vulnerable to becomes a reality. You just sort of believe that tomorrow is going to be like today and and you just bootstrap that out and it just it prevents you from seeing the potential reaction to markets. But yeah, I think that's a, a real interesting one. And, and the other thing I would say is just, it seems to me that embedded in risk management frameworks is by and large a consistent and reasonably strong negative correlation between stock and bond prices. And I agree, it's not my base case either, but boy, a, an unwelcome and, and speedy rise in bond yields, perhaps it's unexpected inflation that does it, that would, as you say, wreck havoc, I think, on on so many strategies. It, when, when your hedge itself, the, the duration becomes part of the problem, I think in, in some ways all bets are all bets are off. Well, listen, this has been a, a fascinating conversation, really, really informative. I'm really glad we had the opportunity to do it. I wanted to ask you a couple of questions just about you personally. First, your experience running ultra marathons. Tell us a little bit more about what, what you've done there. Yeah, so that's one of those physical things that became a mental thing. So I have always been you know, fairly athletic and I always been doing something. I used to play a lot of tennis and then I found that I was more interested in going on longer runs where I could think and clear my head. It's like my time to do shelving of all the ideas that are floating around in my mind. And I, you know, I say that's the time when I actually do my real work. And then when I'm on the desk, I'm basically implementing my real work. So longer, you know, runs became longer and longer. And I moved from roads to trails. And then about 10 or 12 years ago, I realized that I was not the only idiot out there doing this. There was actually quite a few other people who were doing similar things. So I made some really good friends. And it turns out many of them are professionals like myself. You know, many of them turns out are scientists or engineers or Businessman. So I got into the whole community of ultra running and ran my very first ultra a little over 10 years ago and basically got hooked by there's another story there. I twisted my ankle, broke my ankle and I finished and it was mile three and I ended up finishing right towards the end of the pack with a broken, essentially a broken ankle. And I realized that I had a pretty high pain threshold. So started doing longer and longer races. I've done the Western States endurance run now six times, finished five times and earned my silver buckle, which is a sub-24 finished a few years ago, which was probably the hardest thing that I've ever done because I'm basically, you know, you can think of me as a as a Volkswagen or a Hyundai. 
trying to run with others who've got Porsche engines. And I've kind of trained pretty hard to get to that level. And I mean, I'm very proud of, <laughs> proud of being able to do that. So I've done the Western States about six times, the Ultra Trail to Mont Blanc, which is around the Alps. Once that was the longest one I've done. How long was that? That's 105 odd miles, but it's about 30,000 wow. feet of climbing in the Alps. And it was two nights of not sleeping. So 44 hours of pretty incredible stuff. And I just finished Angel's Crest 100 about three months ago. And happy to report that even as I'm getting older, I'm still getting personal records. So I'm getting better. So the kind of the <laughs> fact with myself and with my wife is that as long as I'm getting older and not getting hurt and getting better, I'll keep doing it. The point comes when I'm getting hurt, I'll probably stop. That's great. That's really cool. And and then I saw you're on the investment committee of, of Margaret Cahill Cargill Philanthropies. How did you get involved and, and what does the organization do? So they're a philanthropic organization. They like to be very quiet about what they do, but they're quite important. And I probably shouldn't speak much about philanthropy. They're one of the largest philanthropies in the country, funded from the state of Margaret Cargill. I knew the chief investment officer there, Sean Wishmeyer, and he asked me to come on his investment committee. I got interviewed by the whole board, and they asked me last year to join them and basically become an advisor of sorts on their asset allocation and convexity-related strategies. So we meet four times a year and have frequent projects. They're an incredibly sophisticated group of investors, very smart, and I'm just very happy to be part of the whole team there. Well, it's great great to be able to apply your craft of understanding risk to a philanthropic organization because, of course, protecting the money that's been raised, the endowment, is a critical part of what makes the organization continue to be able to, to give back and impact society. So that, that's very cool. I, I'm assuming you've steered them away from the XIV. That was probably project number uh, one. Yes. I don't think I had to do that because they're pretty cognizant of it themselves. And we have numerous conversations about those topics. They have not made any such mistakes, thankfully. That's great. That's great. Well, Veneer, this has been awesome. I really appreciate your time. Veneer Bansali is the founder and CIO of Longtail Alpha. Veneer, thanks again. Thank you very much, Dean. And I look forward to continuing to read your stuff. And thank you for keeping the great work going at your organization. You've been listening to the Alpha Exchange. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell a friend. And before we leave, I wanted to invite you to drop us some feedback. As we aim to utilize these conversations to contribute to the investment community's understanding of risk, your input is valuable and provides direction on where we should focus. Please email us at feedback at alphaexchangepodcast.com. Thanks again and catch you next time. Mm-hmm.